Welcome back to the OWASP podcast. In this episode, we stretch out our wings and cross over two lines to speak with the third line, internal audit. What role does audit play in cybersecurity and what value does it bring to the CISO org? What makes a good auditor and how can you make your security life better by understanding what audit brings to the table? Let's find out. Hi, this is Matt Tassaro, and I'm back with the OWASP podcast, and this month I've got Zane Heck with me. We're going to talk all about how cybersecurity relates to internal auditing and the auditing side of the house. They're one of our partners in crime and security, so this is a good conversation to have. Zane, for people who don't know you, can you give us a little bit of background on yourself? Yeah, thank you, Matt, for having me on this podcast. It's actually my first ever podcast, really excited about it. So my name is Zane Hack. I, I live in, in Toronto, Canada, and I work for Manulife Financial, which is an insurance and you know, financial services organization. It's a global organization. We are headquartered in Toronto, and then we have operations in the U.S. by the name of John Hancock, and we have offices in Asia as well. I actually work in the third line of defense, so i.e. internal cybersecurity audit function. I work there as a senior manager, and I've been part of the infrastructure auditing, application security auditing, third-party auditing, anything auditing, I've been part of it. Also, just as my as my side gig, I would say, I and, and my hobby, my passion is into is into academics. So I'm actually a part-time professor with York University. Uh, I teach uh, IT auditing and cloud computing at, at the university. And I've, I've also authored a, a book on a certification that's called the Certified Information Systems Auditor, CISA. So I was actually a, a co-author actually on the book uh, for, to help people prepare for the CISA certification. And yeah, I love public speaking. I've spoken on a couple of public forums. And right now here in this podcast, I'm looking forward to share some insights. Awesome. So you mentioned something that I've worked at a financial, so I'm familiar with this, but I, many of our listeners may not be. You said you work for the third line of defense. Can you explain just real briefly the first, second, third line kind of concept? Because I imagine there's some listeners who are like, third line of what? Yeah, sure. So there's obviously, you know, when it comes to like lines of defenses, right, there's a first line, which is really your operations, folks who are actually doing the actual work in, in cybersecurity. They are they're doing like hands-on operations, like penetration testing, vulnerability scanning, assessments, interacting with third parties. So that's really first line, right? Like they are the ones who are right on the border and they're making sure they do their, they do their work well so that anything that's like coming firsthand threat, they're able to counter it. The second line is really your risk and monitoring function. So that's, this is the line that actually develops the standards for the organization, the policies, right? So for example, you bring your own device policy, the policy for doing a penetration testing on your web applications, your front-facing application on a yearly basis, right? So these are the ones who would go to the standards, the ISOs, the regulation, the NISTs, and they would say, okay, these are what the regulators require. These are the best practices in the industry. And this is what we need to we need to put in place so that our company is adequately protected and, and is monitoring all the threats. And then they, they put in like risk programs in place so that the first line is able to take on some ingredients, some templates to do their work. Then to the third line of defense, which is the audit, right? So now the third line of defense is obviously it's an internal function within the company. And however, we actually, in an ideal world, the third line of defense reports directly to the board of directors. So the third line would not be reporting to the CEO, the president of the organization. And this is one of the one of the big things that's a good thing about internal audit because they are, quote unquote, in, independent, even though they're working for the same organization. But because the reporting line is hit from CEO towards the board of directors, 
this is where they're free of bias, they are able to provide objective opinions, etc. So maybe to summarize, first line operations, second line is risk, governance and standards, and third line is audit. Excellent. Thank you. That's great. Because the first time I heard that, I was thoroughly confused. I imagine we have some listeners as well. So you mentioned the CISO, and I, I do like, and I think the idea of the independence of an internal audit third line is fantastic. Well, from a CISO's perspective, who's not in that chain of command, what does an internal audit bring to the CISO and the information security group as a whole? Yeah, no, this is a great question. I think as I was saying, the first thing about the independence part, right? That's really the biggest thing. So we don't, because we don't report to a, a particular function, a CISO or a, or a CIO or a, or a CEO, our, our opinions are unbiased. Our opinions are very objective. If you do good work, you get a pass. If you don't do good work, then you have some work to do, right? So I think that's really very important, especially for the board, for the regulators to say, okay, the internal audit is independent and we can actually rely on their opinion. Right. So I think that's really important, independent point of view. Mm-hmm. Second thing is what I call is still policing. Right. So when I say policing, right. So if you think of a cop, of a police, right, they're really like roaming around your neighborhood, making sure you are secure. So similarly with audit, with internal audit, even though we work within the organization and we try to partner with our, with the departments, with the teams that are being audited, right. We still work in a way where we are from time to time policing how the departments are doing their work. Are they following the standards? Are they following best practices? If there were issues noted, have they tried to remediate it? Have they put in reasonable effort, right? And this is one of the things that the board relies on internal audit for to say that what bad trends are you noticing? What are some of the worrying trends you're noticing? For example, we've had ransomware attacks every three months. So internal audit, what did you really find? Sometimes you might just try to put a fix to the ransomware and say, okay, we didn't pay the ransom. But it's happening again and again, the internal audit might say the root cause is because you have this particular tool that's not really acting well. So that's second thing. The third is what we call the audit requirements, right? So I think one of the things is when we do an audit, it's always it's always a chance for the auditees, the, the, the teams that are being audited, to actually say, okay, do we really have the processes in place? Do we really have something that we can demonstrate to, to, to the auditor, right? And sometimes you might be doing some verbal approvals, right? But in the end, you need something documented, right? So that's why the power of audit requirements, it comes into place in a very sophisticated way where your people who are the control process owners, they're being held accountable for what they're doing, right? So they need to have some evidence to demonstrate that what they're doing is correct. Lastly, what I would say, there's obviously like tons of benefits, but this, these, like the three that I discussed so far are really big ones. And the fourth one is we act as an ally for external auditors or regulators. So for example, you've got the New York Department of Financial Services. They actually launched their cybersecurity regulation a couple of years ago. Similarly, we've got the GDPR in the European Union, the General Data Protection Requirements. And a lot of the times, they will just turn up to an organization's door and they'll say, hey, listen, what are you doing for penetration testing? What are you doing for third-party risk management? Things like that. And when you, when as an organization, you provide them your documents, Internal audit is almost like a seal in the middle and they say, okay, you know what, before you sh- show it to anyone outside, show it to us because we are auditors, we can actually look at it objectively, we can make sure that you provide the right artifact. Let's say you guys do have an unknown issue, you, and obviously you have to be transparent in disclosing it to the regulator, but let's actually see how you're presenting it to the regulator. Maybe there's some action plan that you already developed that we can help to review and say, okay, you know, this, this is missing a particular date, a particular cog in, in that particular plan, things like that. So even though we are independent, we do try to partner in some ex- to, to some extent where we try to act almost like a bypass, right? To say that, okay, you can go through us like a filter and then we'll make sure we review it. 
and we can give you some positive feedback so that the regulators have as little questions as possible. Yes, well, if nothing else, I would imagine internal audit is significantly more familiar with the language of regulators than particularly yeah. the frontline. Now, the frontline is just trying to get their job done. They're going to speak in a way that's not incorrect, but it's not mm -hmm. sort of the language of a regulator, right? So I'm sure that's a very yeah. useful like translation function. Yeah, that's right. Maybe just one thing to add so that people don't actually get scared with the concept of internal audit is like, we do partner with like other functions in the organization, partner in the sense that, or maybe partners are the right word, we do kind of hear opinions from other teams, right? So for example, when it comes to like regulation, right? Yeah, we do read the regulation, we might hire some external consultant who is an expert on the regulation. And we will also talk to the company's internal legal team and say, okay, guys, what's your interpretation? Because I mean, obviously the legal team, they've been hired, they have expertise. So we also want to make sure that we just don't implement our opinion on someone. We don't want to impose it. We want to hear their opinions out too. And that's when we determine, okay, yeah, you say this, but we have this guy who's an expert in this field and they've been providing consulting services to organizations in our industry. And they are saying this, right? And then we determine, okay, what's the best course of outcome there? Yeah, so it sounds like a, a successful internal audit team is much more of a facilitator than a hammer, right? There you go. There you go. Facilitator is actually a better word. Yes. Excellent. So I've done a lot of AppSec, API testing, pen testing work. I'm familiar with the tools for that side of the house, but I've never done any audit. I've interacted with a bunch of auditors, but can you kind of give me an idea? What are the tools of the trade if I'm doing an internal audit function? So I think there's one big thing is the GRC too, right? So you know how there is like the governance risk and compliance tool in an organization. So that particular tool will also have an audit suite, right? An audit suite. And what that will contain is where you store your information, where you log issues, where you'll be monitoring them. Uh, I think there is, I would say from a, from a tools perspective, there isn't like any, any sophisticated tools that we use per se, because our role is really to review artifacts, see things after the fact, right? Like when you have implemented the process, you run the process for a while, that's when we review it. Yeah, it might involve we actually reviewing, for example, Qualys, right? I'm just gonna use this as an example because it's used for vulnerability scanning in the, uh, widely in the industry. We don't use like Qualys per se to run a scan, right? Because that's not our mandate. But let's say the, the audit he wants to demonstrate how they're doing it, we would actually sit with them and, and ask them, okay, show us like how you're running, how you make sure all your servers have been scanned. And when you notice some vulnerabilities, what do you do with those, right? Things like that. So the actual tools that we use is like fairly limited. I would say it's very standard tools like the Microsoft suite, for example, uh, storing documentation in some documentation repository. But yes, we do need, I would say, training and some sort of familiarity with some of the common tools used for things like penetration testing or vulnerability scanning and analysis. Excellent. And, and then what does it take to build out a, a, a robust internal audit function? Like if I've, I've got a Maybe I'm a growing company and, and I realize I'm to the point where I need to do this whole three line things because I'm sure startups, you have somebody who wears all three hats, right? But you get to a size, particularly a regulated financial insurance, those kinds of things, heavily regulated industry, they need to have this. How do you gauge, like how do you make a successful or a robust internal audit? I think it's almost a five point agenda. First thing is the scope and objectives, right? So scope is what I want to audit. And objective is why I want to audit it, what, what, what I want to achieve. So if I, for example, think about a retail brick and mortar organization, right? They would have like different departments. They have supply chain, they've got customer service, they've got inventory management, HR, marketing, et cetera. All of them will be supported by some sort of an IT and a security team, right? So for IT, like for a cybersecurity internal audit function, 
the key thing is to recognize what are all those IT uh, IT teams, cybersecurity teams are, right? What what are they? What are those teams? What are they doing? Do we have any any, any third party outsourcing, etc.? So I think to have a clear view of the of what are your all your IT service providers internally in the organization and externally from the organization is number one. Because if you don't have a full scope, you're not going to do a full audit. That's number one. And then you almost say, which one do I want to audit? So obviously in a given year, Matt, you only have limited resources. You only have you know limited hours, limited manpower. You cannot audit the entire organization processes in a year. So you prioritize. You say, okay, you know what? We know that like supply chain attacks are on the rise. So do we, do we want to focus our audits on that front, right? Or for example, let's I'm going to use Walmart, for example. So Walmart may be launching a multi-million dollar project for, for some sort of any, like technology initiative, right? And the CEO might say, oh, you know what? This one is where really we're going to differentiate ourselves from the from our competitors. Well, what that means is that if, if, if that's like your strategic strategic initiatives, the underlying systems will be a high profile target for the attackers, right? So in that case, our, our mandate might say, okay, you know what, we got to audit this project. We want to make sure there's right risk assessments performed, they have the right controls in place, and if anything is not working, they have some action plans in place. So to summarize, the scope is what I want to audit, which is, you know, based on what are all the internal and external service providers and why I want to audit them, right? So which is based on the relative risk. Second thing is subject matter expertise. So let me give you the story here. So I'm actually a chartered accountant, like I'm a chartered, like a chartered professional accountant, CBA, many years ago when I graduated. And then uh, back in the days, I was hired by PricewaterhouseCoopers in, in, in Toronto in their IT audit practice. And we used to do very simple IT audits, as we call them, things like access security controls. Do we have the right passwords? Uh, are we approving changes before production? They're all important now, but they have really transformed into broader cybersecurity audits now, right? So obviously back then, a lot of accountants would turn auditors, IT cybersecurity auditors. As time has flown by, we are now actually looking for people who have skills and capabilities on the technology front. So for example, we've hired people from DevSecOps, for example, incident response and management, security monitoring and robotics, artificial intelligence. Uh, so I think to have the subject matter expertise is important. One of the thing is like, for, uh, this is for people who may not have a, technolo- a technological background, one of the things is that uh, what people need to keep in mind is that you cannot be a master of all skills, right? So obviously continuous learning is important. So companies have things like they're sending people on trainings, uh, conferences, getting to know new new technologies and the underlying risks in those new technologies. That's how you build an, an, an internal audit team. That was second. Third thing was the audit methodology, right? So like I was saying earlier, what are you auditing against? ISOs, GDPR, NYDFS regulation. In Toronto, in Canada, we've got OSFI, which is the financial services organization watchdog. So there is obviously those requirements out there. There's NIST, obviously, I shouldn't forget that, one of the biggest ones. So trying to build, because those frameworks, those regulations provide us the, the high profile, the high risk areas, right? And that's where we say, okay, based on this, we'll audit against those requirements. Fourth thing is remediation. Now, sometimes auditees are very happy when they think, oh, the auditors are gone. The auditors is wrapped up, we've got the audit report. But one of the key things in audit report is the issue. So if you have an issue, right, and that's of a level of risk that's quite significant, then you need auditors hold you accountable to put in place a plan to address that problem, right? And then we make sure you put a date there, that date is communicated to relevant stakeholders in the organization. Let's say you gave us a date one year out, Auditors will be coming back after one year, knocking your door and saying, hey, guys, have you addressed it? If yes, then show us, demonstrate it to us. How did you address it? 
Okay, so that's very important. We just don't like we, we just don't leave the office when the audit report is issued. It's a continuous process, and it works in the organization's favor because we just don't want to give a report. So these are the problems, and it's your headache now. Audit actually comes back and follows up. Lastly, is sometimes our priorities change, right? So you have an audit plan that you develop for the next three to five to seven years, but sometimes your priorities change. Sometimes there's the risk levels have changed across the different processes in the organization. One of the biggest examples is artificial intelligence. So we know how AI to AI technology is taking the industry by the storm, right? ChatGPT, BART, as these are slowly being integrated into, into the industry, then obviously our audits are taking these into account and saying, okay, this year, we may not want to do a third-party management audit in Q1, we may move it to Q4. Let's do a Q1 audit on artificial intelligence. Have we really adopted these technologies, keeping in mind their security and privacy requirements or not? So things like that. I love to summarize at the end of every question. So five key things that helps to build your internal audit function is scope and objectives, why you audit and, and what you audit, subject matter expertise, so what team you have, what skills they have, audit methodologies, so what are the frameworks, regulations, uh, in benchmarks you're auditing against. Four is monitoring your compliance or mediation for issues that were noted in the audit. And lastly, is peri uh, periodically updating your audit plan to take into account the areas that, that are higher risk. So one thing you said in that in those five points that that struck me and it was interesting because I felt a parallel to it was your SME discussion where you're saying you're trying to hire in technical people now instead of the the more historical path of being a CPA and then becoming an auditor. It, it's funny because I, I've experienced the same thing in AppSec or product security, whatever you want to label that, in that it used to be that you just get people that were curious about it and came into the field and you had this like very wide background of everything from I have a CS degree to I have a history degree, right? Just a, a, a scatter shot of people that came into the industry in the middle of the sort of, if I wanted to hire somebody fresh out of college, I could hire somebody with a cybersecurity degree, which is really a very different world than the one I grew up in back in the dark ages when mm -hmm. I first started because those things just didn't even exist. So it's interesting, have you seen a trend of uh, audit getting more sort of mature in terms of a career focus for people? Yeah, definitely. I think what has happened is over the years with how there's like data breaches, data leakages, DDoS attacks that are happening from time to time, technical folks are, so maybe let's imagine a developer working in their own world, right? Like obviously they're doing great work in developing applications, testing them, deploying them. Uh, not deploying, but like really being part of the team that deploys it. Sometimes when they, when they think about, oh, there are some security risks here, right? I mean, obviously it's part of development, you think about them. Now, audit actually takes those security risks more from an organizational perspective where they say, okay, if there is a risk in this application, there's risk in other applications too that's been developed by the team, right? Now, what I've seen over the time is that a lot of these technical folks have developed some interest to, to, to come to audit and they can actually contribute for the subject matter knowledge, right? Where they say, oh yeah, like using Python or using a particular programming language, for example, how they could be like malicious code that could be in, in injected into, the, into this code, right? And they help us when auditing. Now, on the other end, we actually train these people how to document, right? Like how to document their testing, how to put this. The documentation, which is actually one of the, one of the things I'm, I'll, I'll probably say later on too, documentation is important, right? Because if you don't document it, it doesn't exist. It's almost like they come, like people from technical backgrounds that are coming in, bringing their knowledge is very valuable and they learn something from audit too. Yeah, so there's a symbiosis there and you're right about documentation. That's such a huge thing. Early in my career, I like, I know what I'm thinking. I don't need to write it down. 
I guess maybe it's wisdom or just I'm getting older, but now I realize like, you know what, if I look back at this thing in six months, I'm going to have no clue where my brain was when I wrote this thing. And plus, if you're in a regulated industry, if nothing else, at some point in your future, cybersecurity people out there, an auditor is going to knock at your door and say, yeah, you say you do that, prove it to me, right? I love the fact that you say you're doing X, but how do I know this as a random third party who's shown up and I want it, not a random third party, but you get what I'm saying. Like I'm a third party here who's being told, hey, no, trust me, that used car is really great. It has low mileage, wink, wink, right? Okay, show me the odometer, right? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, particularly for things that aren't simple bugs, but are like flaws, systematic flaws in a particular piece of software, you're looking at an, a non-trivial fix, right? To get that done. How do I, how do we adjust for that? And in where this is where I think SLAs are both good and terrible, because you usually have fixed SLAs by severity. So I don't know, like a medium is 30 days to fix or whatever the number is. But if you have a flaw that like when I worked at Rackspace in the product security group for the cloud, we had to basically do an adjustment to our hypervisors, which meant slowly restarting our entire cloud, tens of thousands of machines. This is not something you just do casually. This is a long drawn out planned process. So when we had those kind of an issue, I, I just threw away the idea of an SLA. And I said, look, I need a date on a calendar that I can come back and check with you and you can show me progress, right? Which is in essence, the same thing you said. And then as long as we keep moving forward, we're fine, right? We're, we're slowly eating the elephant in the room bite by bite. Maybe one thing to even add it there, right? You know how you said about like writing, prove it to me, right? Yeah, you say you do it, demonstrate it to me. Uh, one of the things we always use in audits called trust but verify. So I don't know if you remember back in, 19, in the 1980s when Ronald Reagan, he would engage in discussions with the Soviet Union about their potential nuclear disarmament discussions. One of the, it was actually a, a Russian proverb and a Russian scholar by the name of Suzanne Massey, she actually taught this to Ronald Reagan where, you, where, where she said, you always ask us, you, you, you trust us, but you ask us to verify it, right? So trust but verify works in audit, right? It's almost like, Whenever we talk to clients, we we yeah we have to be skeptical whether the, whether they're doing it right or wrong. That's part of our mandate. But we say, listen, we trust what you're saying. Can you demonstrate it to us, right? Sometimes when they're when they are really struggling to demonstrate it to us, we also give them ideas. We say, maybe you have an email that says that this program is approved to be deployed, right? Uh, maybe you have some sort of Excel spreadsheet lying somewhere in your in your desktop folder that says this is our schedule for penetration testing, things like that. So we, we, we definitely help them to, to come up with, like, they need to have the documents or the artifacts in place. We, we, we do give them some options to say how you can actually demonstrate it to us. Excellent. And so let, let's say this conversation has sparked interest in one of the listeners to, to go into audit, right? Because this seems a, like a fascinating uh, perspective on, on the whole IT cybersecurity thing. What, what, would, what would make up a good auditor? How do I sort of uh, get my toe in the door to start down the audit path? What, you have any suggestions there? Yeah, per, no, this is a great question, actually. And I do have, so I actually run a, an IT audit, uh, IT slash cybersecurity audit program at uh, Yet York University, where I'm actually training people who, who are in different fields, like, you know, technology operations, even some from finance and consulting, and they actually learn the skills. And uh, I actually hired four people from that program into my own team, uh, where I work in many life. So I think there's, five things that I say is like really important. The first one is like knowledge and proficiency, right? So I think people need to have 
it takes for technology, right? So as soon as newer technologies are coming out, you don't need to be a you don't need to be an AI expert per se. But I think it's important you, you keep a good hand check on what technologies are coming out there, and you must need to think from a risk perspective, right? So for example, as soon as you say ChatGPT, a technology enthusiast would say, "Oh my God, this is like crazy AI. The response time is crazy, and I can actually do so much more easily." A good cybersecurity auditor would say, yeah, operationally, this is really well. What are my privacy concerns here? Where is this, all this data going? Do, do I allow this to be installed? Do I allow ChatGPT? I don't want to target ChatGPT. I'm sure it's a great tool, but there are some contentions around these AI engines being used on organizational ITSs like laptops, right? So I think that's very important that you think from a risk perspective first, right? And then you say, there is some good operational use, but I do see some privacy concerns. And then the question comes into play like, hey, so your company decided to use this tool in your organization. Did you go through all the all the privacy requirements? Did you talk to your legal team? Did you assess whether there's data leakage or any sort of information that's going out of the door that shouldn't be going out? Things like that. So I think your acumen for technology, couple that with your understanding of risk, like risk-first approach, that's extremely important. And then also within knowledge is like compliance and regulatory framework. So let's say you're an internal auditor in the European Union, you need to be reasonably well-versed with what the, what the key GDPR requirements are, right? Frameworks, you know, like your ability to think of NIST, your ability to think of ISO, things like that. That's also very important. Now, that doesn't mean to say that I, as an auditor, know all the NIST framework, right? But I think it's the ability to just read it and say, oh, yeah, this is the requirement, and this is how it's, it's applicable to the particular area that we are auditing. So that's knowledge and technical acumen. Second thing is communication. So I think One of the key things that technology folks coming from, let's say a technology role where they're very highly operational and they're doing a a really great job as a a technology professional is we we want them to show us what's your communication skill like. When we raise an issue, when we raise an audit issue, the executives, their bonuses are being hit, right? Obviously, the more issues you have, executives performing like, oh yeah, you have seven audit issues this year that were reported to the audit committee. So I think it's very important how these are communicated, right? What sort of words we are using. For example, I was actually interviewing a candidate many years ago and I gave them a case study and uh, I asked them, these are the five issues. So tell me, communicate these issues to me. And candidates started with, oh, your process is all garbage. That's the words he used. And I said, oh, I have to fail that candidate. I'll imagine talking to an executive who's, who has a respect, like a respectable career profession, even if he's new to the organization, whoever it is, you don't want to sound like you're really belittling the process. You want to start with what is the actual problem and why is it a problem, right? So I think that's important, choosing your words directly. So I think that's extremely important how you communicate in writing, in speaking, and also listening. Because a lot of the times when we raise issues, they will be defensive, right? Like the client will always be defensive to say, oh, we don't have this issue or you haven't looked at everything that we provided you, things like that. So it's very important to be listening and be responsive at the same time. The other thing within communication is business acumen. So you might raise a technology issue on a particular audit. In order to communicate the actual risk or actual impact of that issue, you need to understand the whole business, right? So as an example, you might have a mobile app and you say, oh, this mobile app is not, is, has not been hardened adequately as per CIS requirements. What will help to strengthen your case on the issue is to say, how many users are using this app? We've got 1.5 million users in, in across Canada and America who are using this app. So imagine like this, how much data breach, what's the impact of a data breach, right? So that's important to have the business acumen. 
Third thing is relationship management. So like I was saying that even though we are still like, we are still policing the organization, we, we do wanna see ourselves as like good relationship builders. So many years ago, I was speaking to a, a colleague, they were working for one of the big four accounting firms and they were doing a SOC, service organization controls report audit. And one night their client actually called them at 11 PM and said, listen, I need to disclose that we do have a breach that just happened. They, they spoke directly to the, to the auditor that was involved. And the auditor said, okay, well, that's great. You disclose it to us. Now, this is based completely on trust, right? If there's no trust, then obviously, you know, they're never going, they will be shying from disclosing things to you at the right time. Documentations, like I was saying, like you were also saying, trust but verify. So always, whatever you get, you need to document it well so that audits, auditors get audited too, right? There is a regulatory organization that are keeping a, a check on us. So that's extremely important that you document it well. And the last thing I would say is adaptability. When I say adaptability, a number of times, different audits will come in and you cannot be stagnant to say, oh, I'm only going to audit certain areas, right? So if you want to be a successful auditor, you need to pick up stuff that maybe outside your comfort zone. And what's important for people to be able to do that confidently is a, is a good structure of management, right? The management being supportive, they're providing adequate support to say, listen, you can learn about this technology or this particular security, security monitoring control from this particular link, something like that. So yeah, that's, those are the key things if you want to enter this respectful profession. Nice. Well, that's awesome. Yeah. It, it's interesting because I can remember in my past, uh, a lot of the, the first line operational people kind of throwing shade at auditors, particularly when you're junior, you don't really understand their role in the whole big picture. So I think you've done a really good job demonstrating that, look, there's a, there, and I, I would agree with you wholeheartedly that there's a really good role for internal audit and they do keep you honest. And it is really easy if you're sort of, let's say you're in an apartment by yourself and the person you're dating is coming over. If there's no one around, you might just pick up that carpet and sweep a little dirt under it and lay it down and hope, hey, like no one's gonna notice, right? But if you got a roommate or your partner's there, you'll get out the dustpan and you'll pick it up. It is just important to have that sort of check on some of our less noble <laughs> incentives as human beings, right? No one likes dealing with problems, but that's part of life, man. So one thing I always do at the end of the podcast is I have this Basecamp card company card deck. I'm gonna pull a card randomly after I shuffle it a little bit. Let's see, I will give you this card. You got the five of spades. Oh, here we go. What are three interesting facts about you? Three interesting facts. Okay. The first thing is I lived in four countries. So I was born in Pakistan in Southeast Asia. Then I lived in Dubai, which is famously known as the Vegas of the Middle East, a beautiful, beautiful place, tourist attraction. Then I moved to Saudi Arabia, which is actually bordering Qatar, where the World Cup was held. I'm sure people know Saudi Arabia because of their oil exports. And then, yes, then I moved to Canada and I made a living in Canada. So four countries I've lived in. Second thing, so I've got three kids under the age of four. So I'm, I'm a very busy full-time work-from-home dad. I have a four-year-old boy, a two-year-old boy, and a four-month-old girl. And I, I really have to keep myself like I'm very focused on what I'm doing because at, once I've done work, my life is all dedicated to my kids' activities. Thirdly, I'm a very early riser, actually. So I actually usually wake up at 5.15, 5.30 because my kids wake around eight o'clock. So before getting the, my older one to school and doing all the like, starting work at like 8.39, I do a lot of things in the morning. So I do early morning meditation exercises for a four kilometer walk in the morning. And I spend about 15 minutes just reviewing what I did good the previous day 
and what I aim to accomplish today. So I don't know if people find it interesting, but I find it interesting. No, that's cool. That's great. It's funny. You sound like me, but inverted. I'm a late night person. I like it when my the rest of the house goes to sleep. I also have my, my two kids are home from college, so they're mildly older than yours. <laughs> I like it at night because it gets quiet and then I can concentrate and do, but you get the same thing in the morning. I just have never been great at waking up early. I just, I don't know. That's just not in my biology or in my genes, whatever. I really appreciate your taking some time out to talk to us. This has been really interesting and I'm, I'm happy to get, or I'm happy that we're able to get sort of a perspective on internal audit out to the broader OWASP audience who may not have really interacted too terrible much with them if they're not working in a regulated industry. Okay. No, that's great. It was a pleasure talking to you. And yeah, if anyone who's here in this podcast and they want to reach out via, via LinkedIn, if you're thinking of making a move to internal audit, or you need some support in any other aspect of internal auditing, or you're setting up a new, new internal audit team, by all means, you can reach out to me via LinkedIn. All right. Thank you very much. Okay. Thank you. I'd like to thank Defect Dojo Inc. for making it possible for me to record this episode. Defect Dojo Inc. is a team of experienced technology and security professionals who build tools that actually provide peace of mind. They want all humans to sleep better knowing that their work is effective, their progress de-risked. Defect Dojo's flagship software offering is a security automation and vulnerability management platform that serves as a single source of truth. It can import results from more than 150 different security tools. It is a leader in the space with over 30 million downloads. Contact them at defectdojo.com for more information about their products and services.